Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode of our program where I get to have conversations with incredible leaders from around the planet. Uh, and today I'm interviewing uh, Professor David Shepherd, who is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Sheffield Hallam University. Now, I bumped into Professor Shepherd, or David as he prefers to be called, uh, some weeks ago when I was uh, running a programme on emotional intelligence and leadership for a cohort of people, leaders from Sheffield Hallam University. He appeared as a guest and I have to say I was blown away, literally blown away by what this gentleman in front of me had to say and his philosophy on leadership. So I thought, I'm going to have him on the on the programme, why not? So David, welcome to uh, this programme, it's great to see you here. Cool, thank, thank you very much, thank you for the invitation, and thank you for setting me up to disappoint everybody in the course of our conversation uh, today. Yeah, I'd like to put people under pressure, but I don't think there's any pressure for you. I know that you're rushing around uh, with meetings all day today, David, so I do appreciate you taking half an hour out to talk to our listeners. I know there's going to be some golden gems that they can take away. And, you know, there's a lot of aspiring leaders or maybe leaders already uh, in certain positions listening to this podcast. So the idea is that we have a conversation that people can take snippets away and think, hmm, why not? Why not implement that into my leadership philosophy uh, myself? So talking about leadership philosophy, what is yours? That, you know, that's that's a really tricky question. And, and I'm not sure that I can articulate it in a, in a simple statement. Um, let me start by saying that uh, you might not want to hear this as somebody who works professionally in the, in the area of leadership development, but I'm not very good at reading stuff <laughs> and watching podcasts and listening to podcasts on leadership. I'm afraid, you know, I've been in, uh, I've been working in universities for more years than I care to remember. I've developed into a, a leader almost by accident. I started off as a teaching and researching academic and then ended up moving my way through middle management into senior management and only gradually beginning to realise what the distinction was between management and leadership and what the importance of developing oneself as, as a leader is. So it's been something of an organic rather than a structured journey for me into, into senior leadership. Um, and I think that has its advantages in some ways, but I also think it probably has some disadvantages in that perhaps I haven't spent long enough in a structured way reflecting on what it means uh, to be a leader. But uh, if you want me to try to distill it down to um, something to do with that, that might be articulated or described as a philosophy, it is to me about 
being able to do something that I spoke about in those in that that presentation that you very kindly referred to a few minutes ago, which is about being able to bring the whole of yourself into your role. Um, and not making too much of a distinction between the personal and the professional. Now, we all have to keep those distinctions for the sake of our sanity as much as anything else for the sake of our life-work balance. But I think, uh, for me, it's really important that I'm, to as great an extent as possible, authentic in the workplace, that I bring uh, all aspects of of. of my personality or feel free to deploy those uh, in the workplace um, rather than feeling there are certain parts of me that I that I have to leave uh, at home in the particular context that we that we were talking about uh, in the, the last couple of weeks um, I was specifically speaking not only but to, to a large extent in my role here at Sheffield Hallam as 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 one of our champions for equality, diversity and inclusion, with a particular responsibility for LGBTQ+. And as it happens, I'm a gay man, which means that um, that aspect of my life experience is something that I can bring to that role, um, but not only to that role, because I think the fact that my life experience includes being a gay man in a particular period of UK history, within a particular educational sector has shaped the way I look at the world, has shaped the way I understand my own position in that world and perhaps most importantly has shaped the way in which I understand the position of other people in that world. Um, that's not to say that I understand it perfectly um, but for me uh, at, at the very least that is just a, a specific example of a set of experiences that have made me confident about what I know, but also confident about admitting what I don't know. And I think being able to do that, regardless of whether it's to do with a protected characteristic or whatever, is a really, really important part of leadership. Um, one of the earliest things I was taught as an academic was never be afraid to say to your students, I don't know, but I'll find out. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, you talk about bringing the whole of yourself into whatever position it is. I, I, there's, there's, there's so much behind that statement. Uh, and there are so many leaders I've seen, and I'm sure you have as well, who are a certain human being before they get promoted. They get promoted and get themselves into a leadership position and suddenly they change. They change character. They they become a different person, uh, and and you can see that they are they're struggling within themselves in terms of what kind of personality do I bring into leadership? And what you're saying is, well, just be you, and that is so important in terms of building trust. You know, people can see through authenticity. It's about building trust. It's about uh, having simpler communication that people understand. It's about showing your vulnerabilities and, 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 and demonstrating that you don't hold a monopoly on good ideas, that you're just human, just like anybody else. And that there's some power in that vulnerability, isn't there? I think so. When you, when you move into, you know, increasingly senior leadership positions, that it does change in, to some extent the way in which you have to interact with people. It becomes a little bit lonelier. Um, <laughs> you know, does. Well, f friendship becomes difficult because there are boundaries that have to be respected um, and you can't become close to people because there could be a perceived or actual conflict of professional interest there and that that is unfortunate but that doesn't mean that you have to be aloof that you have to be standoffish or officious 
or that you um, take refuge behind your your professional status and I think if you lose that ability as I put it a few minutes ago just to say I don't know or to show vulnerability then I think you're 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 missing out on the opportunity precisely as you say to establish that trust that confidence that openness of communication and communication is always two-way that's one of my research areas and you do that at, at your peril because um, it's it's not only to do with the quality of the interaction between you and the, and, and the people you're working with leading uh, but it's also to do with the contribution that you can jointly and individually make to the organization you're working in and, and that that is crucially important in, in my view talking of communication which I understand uh, is your specialism You've been in the higher education environment for, what, 20, 30 years now? It's a long time, isn't it? I don't want to even guess your age. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been uh, around for a long time in the higher education, <laughs> and you must have seen it change and reshape itself so much. And as a gay man, what have your experiences been, good and bad, within that environment? Well, first, I'll fess up. I started my first academic job in September 1983. So uh, Here's the thing, David. I started off in the police service January 1983, so we're OK. You've worn a lot better than I have, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, uh, you know, it, it, it has been an interesting time. And um, so th- th- that, that point in the 80s, well... Fast forward a few years, and, and of course we're, we're, we're in the period of um, Section 28, the legislation introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government, which prohibited the promotion of, of homosexuality. Now that affected um, secondary education or primary education far more than it did tertiary edu- education. Um, but uh, nevertheless, there, there was something around that that made, that made being a gay man, you know, in many ways, un- uncomfortable. You, you, when you mentioned Section Twenty Eight a few weeks ago, uh, I had to pinch myself and 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 ask myself, did that really happen? You know, in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and now look where we are. It's a just incredibly changed world, isn't it? It, it is incredibly changed uh, in certainly in the legislative and the legal context. Although we might want to come back to whether to the extent to which it's changed in in the experience in the context of people's experience but yeah at the time it was it was extraordinary but you know as i said the other week i actually think that paradoxically um the introduction of section of section 28 generated resistance and and gave energy to the to the the what was then as was principally the gay rights movement but we would now call it the lgbtq plus movement and actually paradoxically i think and unintentionally but mercifully accelerated the the development and and introduction of gay rights it wasn't a a a, a, a rapid progress process by any means i didn't myself play any hugely active role in that so i'm not laying claim to being anything like um you know an, a, a a gay activist but i i tip my hat to those who did uh, and and many of them very high profile people people like ian mckellen uh, uh, the, the actor at that time there was there was a generation of momentum and of understanding then, uh, which I think was 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 really quite quite remarkable. So that, um, and and I think that made it easier for me, in the in the workplace, to to come out, um, 
there wasn't a, wasn't a single moment of, of coming out and I think this is probably an experience that many many gay people ha have had I mean I, I did meet my my, my then partner um, in when I was in at the University of Manchester two or three years after I'd started there in 1986 and it was increasingly obvious to anybody around us that we were an item but it was never there was never a public statement of that it was just one of those gradual incremental things uh, where where things become clear and sometimes that can be the most effective way of affecting change and affecting understanding is not to come out with a big announcement but just to allow things to develop and and to, to demonstrate that it's no big deal as, as it were but there was there was a change there was still you know residual homophobia in some of the language that was used at, in universities at the time um and so in in terms of one's sense of ability to progress and so on um you know one had to be uh, careful um but it became easier um it became easier as as time went by but as I said, and again, you've, you've heard me say this before, cool, it, it didn't become easier just because of any inherent qualities that my then partner and I had, um, or only because of gradual changes in the environment that I spoke about a few minutes ago. Um, that, that, but it was, it was, it's also to do with, with, with other factors that I think one has to be aware of. So both my partner and I were white, male, uh, increasingly senior, um, you know, advancing through the, the higher education uh, uh, system. And we, uh, although we both started off very much as working class kids, um, we had become middle class. So, you know, we had developed all the assets that, 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 that and, the, and the capital that comes with that. And so we became acceptable gay men. And I think it's really important as I think if I step back into the sort of leadership space and thinking, you know, how can I role model being, um, you know, a, a, a leader who, who also can speak for at least one section of the LGBTQ community. It's really important that I not lapse into some sort of self-congratulatory mode and say, well, but I've done this, so anybody can do this. You know, I don't know what it is to be anything other than the G of LGBTQ+. Um, and I don't know what it is to be female. I don't know what it is to be part of a minoritized ethnic group. I've forgotten what it is to come from a background where higher education isn't the norm. So it's really important that as a leader, I go back to that point I made earlier about remembering and understanding what it is I don't know or what I no longer know, what I'm no longer in touch with. And don't assume that my experience covers all the bases it doesn't and i think that's really really important in a leadership mindset to, to to tell yourself well i can't be expected to know all of these experiences but i i i have to try that bit harder to develop a level of empathy with the feelings that people might be going through or at least take the time and the effort to try to understand where that person is uh, and what their experiences are. And I think that's that, that's very important for, for any leader. Uh, there's two key elements to leadership that I really um, think are so important. And the first of those is leadership self-awareness. Um, what do you do or what have you done in the past to become increasingly self-aware? You, you come across as a very self-aware individual. Now, Part of that is the experiences that you've been through and you are able to identify with your working class background, being a gay man, 
living through an era where you know there's a lot of suppression uh, around that particular area what else have you done in terms of keeping your keeping alive your self-awareness thanks that, that, that's a, a a great question first what i hope is but this is for others to judge is that self-awareness hasn't somehow morphed into self-obsession uh, yeah. uh, because self-obsession can actually then fold back into a lack of self-reflexiveness or reflexiveness which i think is is, is incredibly incredibly damaging um I think it's just important to keep yourself grounded. I, I often say, look, I, you know, whatever ro role I'm in, I take my job incredibly seriously and my responsibilities incredibly seriously, but I don't take myself that seriously. I like that. So I think it's really important not to do that. Um, otherwise, you lose that, that, that authenticity. But I did say at the beginning that I've, I've not been very good at the sort of structured leadership development. Um, that said, I have undertaken structured leadership development and uh, and I encourage others to do so as well because it can generate a time and space in which you have time just to reflect and it's really important that you know however busy we are we do take that time out to reflect and 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 recognize that as part of our busyness but um, there was a particular moment that you you might recall that I that I mentioned uh, of developing self-awareness around leadership, which came from being in a structured program. This was when I was doing a, a, a top management program and we'd, as part of the preparation for that, had a, a got been through the, the, the 360 degree feedback exercise and we'd all been given the results of, of you know, what, what our peers thought of us in comparison to what we thought of ourselves, what our seniors thought of us, what our direct reports and so on thought of us. And rather than having a, a, a cosy conversation with, with a nice person like you, a leadership coach or facilitator, um, there were six of us in a room um, and we each of us had to talk to an, another talk another person through the outcome of their 360 report in front of everybody else. So it was a quite a revealing thing and uh, quite nerve wracking in many ways. But I think I think very helpful because it it made you realize that if you're in a safe space, it's okay to talk about these things. We talked earlier about vulnerability. You know, you feel very, very vulnerable when you're having things that have been said about you by others discussed by a whole set of different people. Um, but there was, uh, I was being talked through this by, by, by a, a guy. All the other people in the room were not academics, which I think was also an, an important uh, thing for me, a realisation that uh, you know academics can be terribly self-regarding and think that there's something terribly special about their profession. There isn't really. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the guy who was talking me through this was, was somebody who worked as, as a scientist for the, for the Home Office. And he, he took me through various things and was looking at some of the comments that had been made by, by people. And he said, you know, he said, David, I wonder if there's a bit of a theme coming through here that on occasion in your interactions with others, you can be a little bit defensive. And I looked at him and I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I really, I, I don't see that. And he said, no, but look, look at this, look at this. And after about two minutes, I had one of those moments, those sort of scales from the eyes moment where I realized, you fool, you know, you're, you're acting out the very thing that you're denying that other people have identified in you. And so that, that stayed with me, both for itself and, and, you know, the D word, defensiveness, is something, I don't know whether I succeed, but I always try to avoid it. It stayed with me for that particular point, but also for 
the, the awareness that it gave me that you must always make space to think about what am I doing here? Am I being consistent? Am I being authentic? Or am I missing an opportunity to reflect? So always take that opportunity to reflect and particularly when somebody says something that you might find challenging, don't go straight into the deflection mode or the defensiveness mode, but really allow that to land and reflect hard on it. It may be you, you want to push back, but don't push back straight away. And there's normally something there. Yeah. Well, one thing I love about that story, David, is the, uh, the fact that it, it demonstrates how important feedback is from other people. Yeah. To see yourself through another person's eyes, it's almost sometimes looking like uh, looking at a stranger. Uh, uh, and if you are going to ask for feedback, make sure you create an environment where it feels safe for that other person to give you feedback. And thirdly, it's to acknowledge the feedback and not become defensive and actually analyse that and say, so what do I need to improve? How can I improve uh, uh, from from hearing that feedback because if that one person is seeing me like that then maybe other people are seeing me like that and the mirror that I'm looking in is probably a bit deformed anyway you know absolutely one of the comments that I received in that same 360 feedback exercise was David does not seek feedback enough uh, and I know who said that it was me um, and it, so it was it was a it was a deliberate that was another moment of self-awareness I knew I was not good at seeking feedback so what I've always tried to do since um, is you know particularly if I'm giving feedback to a colleague um, is to say but actually now can I have your feedback please how has this been for you is this working relationship working for you if not what can I do better what can we do better together so um you know, never forget to, to seek the feedback. There's nothing more valuable. And it helps us grow. I mean, that, that is part of our continuous improvement. There was a particularly lovely story uh, that you mentioned, and you, 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 know, you mentioned your, your partner who's no longer with us, uh, uh, bless him, uh, but you learned an awful lot from him. And it sounds like he was a very wise leader. Uh, and there was a particular story that you mentioned uh, in that session around meetings uh, do you want to just tell us that story? Because I just thought that was a really, really, it was very deep. Thanks very much. I, I will. And, you know, I always, it's, it's always a pleasure to remember Jeff, my, my, my late partner who, who died. It's coming up to 13 years ago now. Talk about leaving a legacy because we're still talking about his stories now. I mean, that, that's a leadership legacy. Well, it, it is indeed. And, you know, and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's absolutely of a piece with the sort of family legacy as well of, um, of, of the little anecdotes about him and about his parents and, 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 and so on. It, and it, there's an absolute continuum there. But he was, he was somebody who was, who was very, very wise, partly because of his own life experience, um, which had involved um, being, being a, a, a gay man forced back into the closet um, uh, when he was at university in the late 1950s, a man who, who suffered a, a, a total nervous breakdown, had to have electrical shock therapy in the, in the early 70s, um, but had rebuilt his life um, and rebuilt his life with, with his children and, you know, with, with good relations with, with, with his ex-wife and, uh, and so on. Um, so, and, 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 a, and a sort of serenity about him um which um which i learned to admire more with, with every day but he was an academic as well he was as i often have said he was not somebody who aspired to leadership roles he was of the generation that took on formal management roles because you were expected to 
he was a natural leader, however, although I'm not sure he would have described himself in, in, in that way. But in, in, in undertaking the, the, the formal leadership role, which he did reluctantly, he did it very effectively because of his emotional intelligence and, and of his ability and willingness to speak about emotional matters totally openly in contexts where other people may, might have found them uh, that, that, that rather, rather threatening. But he always had in mind what is the best interest of the student. <laughs> That's absolutely something that all of us in universities need to, need to be aware of. And, and absolutely had in mind that the last thing you, 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 you had refuge in was your status. So the, the, the story I told was, um, was, was about him being a member of uh, an examination board uh, at a fairly early stage in his career, um, which was chaired as most boards in universities were in the 1960s and 70s by crusty, tweed-jacketed, white male professors. And it was an examination board that was discussing whether a particular student should get a 2-1 or a 2-2. Uh, and the, the committee was split on this. We don't have these kinds of discussions anymore, but they used to be common in, in the university in those days, with the person's name known and so on. It just wouldn't happen these days. Um, but this was a, a, a case where the, the person who was in the chair had made it clear that he thought the, the person, in the, the student involved, should receive the lower of the two classifications, the 2-2. Two, two. Uh, and let's say there were 10 other people in the, the room and five of them were for the 2-1 and five were the 2-2. The two, two. So they took a vote and it was split 5-5. Five, five. So the chair has the casting vote and, uh, and he said, all he said was, well, you all know what I think. And so the student got the lower of the two awards. Um, and Jeff always reflected on that and he, he would tell me that when he chaired examination boards, in the rare instances where it came to a vote and there was a tied vote, he would always think, okay, um, before we make the decision, before I declare my hand as chair and use my casting vote, I think we've got a tied vote. Let's just take that vote again. Let's just make sure that that's what everybody really thinks. And very often he would find that there would just be one or two people who would change their vote, normally in favour of the student, having seen what the balance was, having reflected and said, do you know what, is it worth it to you know, we're so close, give the benefit of the doubt. And so that was good not only for the students, but crucially, it was a way of allowing people to change their minds very publicly because your hand has either gone up or it's gone down. Absolutely, yeah. But not to lose face and not to be made to feel that you've done anything wrong. It was just to provide that space for silent negotiation of a position. And I think, you know, that's something I never had to do that. But that was always in the back of my mind when I thought, you know, if I ever have to chair a meeting where there's a difficult decision to be made and it will fall to me, I won't resile from taking that decision. But I will try to use that collective wisdom in the room, the wisdom to change your mind and give people the freedom to change their mind without feeling that they're losing face. And that's so important. When that happens... I am guessing that um, when that final decision was made, everyone took ownership of that decision because it had gone through such a an empowered process. Really, the 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 power was given back to those people within within that room, and the chairperson was the leader, the inspiring leader. Jeff was the inspiring leader in terms of you know I'm with you, whatever whatever decision you make, I am with you. 
Uh, and whether I agree with it or not, that's a testament of my strength as a leader. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, I, I think we could learn, you ought to almost write an anecdote, uh, a book of anecdotes, uh, Jeff's anecdotes. Really. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, yeah. it sounds like he was a, a way ahead of his time in that era to think like that and to even demonstrate or talk about emotions and emotional intelligence. I mean, it's it's still difficult in the here and now talking about emotions in the workplace. And that's why we have such a big issue around uh, well-being in the workplace, around male suicide and all of these kind of things that we have in society. Uh, can you imagine multiplying that back into the 60s and the 70s and the environment? That, so in, in many ways, he was ahead of his time. I agree, yeah. It sounds like, you know, we, we need more of the Jeff style of leadership in the current climate, whichever organisation that we're in, because I don't think any one organisation uh, is better than another organisation or, or service or sector, uh, because we have this, and I don't think we've quite got rid of it, we still have this view of leadership that it's a hierarchical thing. It's a hierarchical structure. Even the university has a hierarchical structure. The police service, you can see my hats behind me. Everything was, uh, you know, I'm just about to put a plaque on the wall with all my ranks on there. But it's all about visible hierarchy. And I think the real challenge for us as modern leaders is to flatten out the thinking. Yes, you may have the ranks and the titles, but to flatten out the thinking around leadership so that everybody feels that they have an equal part uh, in the discussion, that we move away from group think and we encourage creativity and innovation and, and cognitive diversity. And I know Sheffield Hallam's doing an awful lot of work around this, only because I've worked a lot with Sheffield Hallam. You're absolutely right about that. There, there is something around... You know, very often we talk about leadership cap uh, capacity within an organisation, um, and 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 that's talking about the number of roles we have with particular managerial responsibilities or whatever. And look, you need structures, you need hierarchies. Yes. I'm not going to say, oh, hierarchy isn't important. You know, I'm deputy vice chancellor. You know, that's an important role. It's one that I've aspired to and that I take very seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. For don't forget, but it's really important not to confuse. Um, leadership capacity with leadership capability. Yes. Um, and leadership capability is absolutely not confined to those who are in management roles. Um, and it would be a real problem if the only responsibility for leadership resided with those who occupied formal leadership or, or management roles. So as you've heard me say, it's, it's a trite thing to say, but it's something I genuinely believe. Um, you don't need to be a manager to be a leader but you do need to be a leader to be a manager, uh, I think. Um, but it is about, going back to your notion of flattening out hierarchy, it's about recognising that there may be people who don't hold a formal role, who are relatively junior in an organisation. That doesn't mean they can't be the most superb leaders. And actually their leadership can flourish precisely because they're not in a management or in a formal role. And we have to recognise those different capabilities and play to those strengths truth is that uh, many people within an organisation at some point in time are either influencing others or influencing circumstances. It could be that they are the most junior, but they happen to be an expert in a particular area. So even you as a deputy vice chancellor would go to that person because you recognise that individual as being the expert and therefore they have a leadership function or a leadership uh, position in the organisation, despite not being a manager. 
uh, some real depth in that. And I, I want to leave the listeners uh, just pondering on that thought uh, because uh, I think it, it's one that we don't think about an awful lot. But listen, I can't believe our half an hour has flown away. It just has just flown by. Uh, I want to thank you so much, David, for spending time with us. I'm shoot. I'm guessing that you're shooting off to another meeting. I am indeed. <laughs> I want to thank you once again. Uh, I know that uh, uh, you have had to take time out, but I appreciate your nuggets of wisdom. So thank you very much for appearing on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.